0: fight against poverty, our main thrust has been to empower the poor and make them active participants in the benefits of economic progress.
1: There have been protests in India this week because the Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, decided to demonetise five hundred and one thousand rupee notes. This is part of a wider plan of economic reform and to crack down on the black market, corruption and tax evasion. My guest on Business Briefing...
0: I'm Kaushik Basu, I'm a professor of economics at Cornell University in Ithaca and in New York. Till very recently I was the chief economist of the World Bank and just before that I was the chief economic advisor to the Indian government.
1: ...thinks it may not be the best tool in tackling these problems, as well as inequality.
0: I am concerned that though this policy was undertaken, I do believe with the right intention to get at black money, which is a very large uh, proportion of the Indian economy. It's very difficult to estimate exactly how much, but it's a large proportion. And black money typically means money where you evaded paying income tax and other forms of taxation, and you've stacked up the money. You do want the government to get at it, but um, my concern is that the instrument that is being used to get at this uh, does so much collateral damage to other kinds of activities that it can have a backlash on economic growth, which could last for a while. Uh, Because at one level, what's going to happen is a part of the money is going to get scorched, because 31st December will come, the money that has not been brought out, you won't be able to change that, it's gone. So it's going to cause a drop in demand. Now, what can be done uh, uh, is you can inject liquidity elsewhere in the system. The government can print money and inject it, to compensate for that. But what happens is uh, the liquidity gets mopped up from some hands and you inject it elsewhere. So the pattern of demand, what those people would have demanded with that money and what the new people will demand can be different. That disruption can be massive. And I I worry a little bit that um, uh, that's not being fully comprehended. So what this intervention is going to do is it's going to flush out some of the current black money, part of it, but it's not going to solve the problem in the long run because you're just replacing the old currency notes with the new notes. So once again, people will begin to evade taxes now in brand new notes and stash them up. So the black money problem in the long run is not going to be solved in the best of scenarios. In the best of scenarios, what you'll get is a one-time flushing out of a part of the black wealth that has uh, accrued in the system, but once again, it'll build up.
1: We've seen some concerns, and as you've mentioned as well, for India's poor in this. And if this is not an effective way of of transforming the economy to be able to um, help inequality in some way, tackle corruption for India's poor, what other measures do you suggest might be more effective? Yeah.
0: You know, uh, on the corruption front, there are lots of things that need to be done, but very detailed architecture of how you attack that is very important. And the reason for that is corrupt activities in an economy are intertwined with legitimate activity all over. It's almost like within the human body, if you're trying to get at a tissue which is defective, unless you pay attention to the fact that all around it, there's healthy tissue, and you don't want to damage that when you go to this, you'll do great harm to the human body. It's a similar problem with corruption. The corruption problem is so intertwined with the legitimate economy that it needs very fine planning to get at that. Lot of policy, and it's not going to happen overnight. On inequality, there are interventions that can take place much more directly, much more blunt, where you will begin to see impact on inequality. The poor do need support. And in India, you do have measures for that, providing food, providing health, providing education. But the delivery in India is extremely poor. The leakages in the system, the food delivery system, and this is the legacy of the last uh, 30 years. The food delivery system, the government collects food and then tries to give it back to poorer households. We have data that more than 40% of that food leaks out. So it's a massive expenditure by the government with a lot of leakage. So if some of these things can be plugged if there can be better redistribution, and I do believe that in an economy like India's growing so rapidly, you do need the government to inter- intervene, tax the rich, transfer some of the it as directly money to the poor, some of this in terms of health support and other fine, uh, kinds of support. That can be done much more directly and much more easily.
1: The same problem of inequality we've seen mirrored in different ways and obviously manifesting in different ways around the world with the response to Brexit and the election in the U.S., What do you think policymakers should be doing in a time like this? We've seen calls for company tax cuts not only in the US but also in Australia. Is this an effective measure of countering inequality, this trickle-down economics, or are there better ways, do you think, to counter this kind of rising feeling of those who've been
0: left out? You know, the global problem, and India's getting a little bit of that, is um, rather different from just a direct intervention to correct it. I feel the reason this is happening... And it is affecting, in this case, the advanced economies more than the emerging economies and the developing economies, is to do with technology. There are two kinds of technological advance which is affecting this. One is the arrival of robotic robotic creatures who are taking over a lot of the work. And the other is technology which allows workers sitting in faraway countries, much cheaper labor, to do work for another country. Rise in these two technologies has meant that the share of wages in the national income has been going down across the board in rich countries. In Australia, I can give you the number, it was 67% in 1975, it is 54% now. So of the GDP, wages constituted 67%, now it's 54%. So virtually two-thirds of the economy to half the economy. This is a trend worldwide. Workers are suffering as a consequence of that in Australia, in the United States, in the UK, in all advanced economies. What do you do about this? If you try to pull up the shutters and go for protectionism, all that will happen is other countries which use the cheaper labor that is available in the world will outcompete you in the trading market, and you will not you will actually be impoverished in the long run. To me, once again, this big challenge in the world has to be attended with policies of redistribution. Very different from the old-fashioned ones of little bits of tinkering here and there. We may have to think of big ideas like profit sharing. A percentage of profit earned in Australia should be just for the workers. 10% of the profit could go into a pool which goes to workers. So every time work gets outsourced to another country, or a new brand of machines come in and displace workers, invariably you're getting a boost in profits when these things happen. Earlier this boost in profit would accrue entirely to the people who own the shares and own the companies. If you have a system whereby some of this profit can go to uh, the workers directly, you will begin to counter this problem. So we need very imaginative thinking because the structure of the global labor market is changing as a consequence of changes in technology.
1: Do you think there is also a problem worldwide with a focus on growth and continuing growth? We've seen world growth slow and there is a some sort of focus, I guess, in, especially in an environment of low interest rates, on how we can stimulate the economy. Do you think this is playing into the problem?
0: You know, the, the emphasis on growth and trying to grow well, I feel it's important. And for rich countries, it's not that important. You've already reached a standard of living where you don't have to struggle for that. For emerging economies, developing countries, there's still a mass of poor people and they'll try to have that. So growth is important.
1: Do you think it's possible to achieve boosting growth while addressing inequality with some of the measures that you've proposed?
0: I think so. And I feel also that if it comes to a trade-off, that you have to give up on a little bit of growth to get better distribution, I would do that. So very often, you find economists and policymakers keep saying that uh, better distribution is good for growth. My response is even if it was not good for growth, it's better to sacrifice a little bit of growth to get a, get better distribution.
1: From that, is there any advice you have for Australian policymakers in an, in the current climate in Australia as to how to respond to the global economic environment at the moment?
0: The, Advice from that is pay attention to income distribution. And I may add that the root is not protectionism. There is a bit of a tendency. It's amazing how the world has changed. I remember when I used to be a student, it would always be rich countries telling poor countries, don't indulge in protectionism. Whereas today you hear a lot of rich countries talking in terms of the importance of protectionism. Protectionism is not good policy for yourself. And also, I personally believe, but this is just a moral stance, which another person does not have to share, that we live in a small world, and while we are concerned about each country, about your country's policy, we also have to be concerned about the globe. And this, I would say, even in India, that India is doing well, but we have to be Uh, conscious about sub-Saharan Africa, how they are doing, so there has to be a global concern. So global concern, awareness of distribution, and the environment, you cannot ignore that for very much longer because today we are seeing the deteriorating environment not from textbooks and academic writings, but by looking up at the skies in many countries, you can see that that's happening.
1: There has been a similar sentiment brought up in Australia about doing away with larger currency, you know, a completely different environment to India, of course, but with the same sentiment to avoid tax evasion. Do you think this sort of policy could work in in another setting like Australia?
0: Yeah, the uh, doing away with big currencies, um, uh, big notes, is a movement that is picking up all over. And I feel, for uh, first of all, for the more advanced economies it is easier to take that step because a lot of transactions are already taking place in terms of um, credit card and digitally, so you can begin to do that. You can't right now do away with all currency, not in India, not in Australia, not in uh, the United States. I think the world will reach that at some point when it'll be a cashless world. It'll be just a digital record of how much money you've got, how much you've spent. But that's still far away. In the meantime, the idea of doing away with uh, big currency notes, because also of of a lot of uh, illicit transactions to be curbed, is not a bad idea. I don't think it's going to dramatically change things, but... It's doable for a country like Australia. But I don't think you're going to get a huge advantage out of that. So don't spend too much energy on that.
1: That's Koshik Basu, Professor of Economics at Cornell University. Why don't you just ask an economist? My name's Kat McGoran, I'm from Richmond in Melbourne, and my question is, if most of the major US banks won't do business with Trump, presumably many of the reputable overseas banks won't either. So will this push him towards more unscrupulous loan sources for his money, and if so, will it leave him open to manipulation from uh, certain countries? And I want to know because I'm confused about how someone with such an irresponsible financial history can rule a country as influential as the US.
2: So firstly, I'm not entirely sure I accept the premise of this question, which is I'm not familiar with evidence that says Donald Trump is systematically unable to borrow from from American banks uh real estate developers borrow from a variety of different sources uh it's not always bank lending and uh and uh, so it's not totally clear to me that he can neither borrow from American banks nor that he doesn't find other sources of capital. It is true to say that if he if he couldn't borrow in the American market, then he'd find it very hard to borrow in the overseas market. If you can't get the loans made in, in U.S. dollars, be it from bonds or uh, standard bank debt secured by the properties and so on, then you're going to find it very hard to to go to overseas banks and certainly in foreign currencies. But I think there's a deeper thing at play there, which is whatever – any of us might think of President-elect Trump. His ability to run or inability to run his uh, businesses and his business empire really has very little to do, in my view, with his ability to be a good president of the United States. And in fact, I think one of the consistent fallacies that we see in the in the US media and it's true in Australia as well, is to conflate business success with the ability to successfully, govern. Uh, Business success is a great thing. It's an important thing. It's wonderful for the economy. It's not an easy thing to do. But simply because someone's been successful in business, hard though that may be, does not necessarily mean that they're going to be good at uh, holding a high elected office. It goes to a deeper thing as well, I think, which is that people seem to conflate uh, business with the economy in general and that What may be good for businesses in the specific are not necessarily good for the economy in general. So I think we could do a lot more in the press to try and break uh, this conflation of business, elected office and the economy in general.
1: So Trump, as a businessman, to sort of summarise, he might have certain conditions on borrowing for his particular business interests. But when it comes to, for example, Trump the president-elect wanting to spend more on infrastructure and and do work in the U.S. economy. That's a whole different type of loan and and type of structure that we're talking about here.
2: It it certainly is. I mean, we're talking about the ability of the uh, federal government of the United States to borrow money, and right now they can borrow uh, an almost unlimited amount of money at historically low interest rates, even after the speculation of a December rate hike The uh, long-term bond rates in the US were a little over 2.3%. So they can borrow incredibly cheaply for a very long time. And there's a lot of money sloshing around the world looking for a home. And the US is still seen as an incredibly attractive home. And that's not going to to change with necessarily just who's in command of that. Uh, It's going to change with the the conditions and the policies that the United States government uh, pursues.
1: An interesting question from Kat. And a well thought out answer, as always, from economist Richard Holden. If you've got a question for Ask an Economist, write it down or record it and send it to ask at theconversation or oneword.edu.au. That's ask at I'm Jenny Henderson, Business and Economy Editor. Our theme music is by Ben Sound. And if you want more episodes of Business Briefing, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit us on the Conversation's website.